Welcome to Storybroke! Miserably ever after. I am the book-slash-movie tie-in you never wanted or needed, Mads! And reintroducing... I'm the conflicted pop ballad you sing while your crush swims around in his underwear, Katya! I mean, Corey! Oh my god, are you calling us out for doing the uh thing right here on the show? Yeah, I kind of figured you and uh, Elaine were never going to do it, so I... If you can't call yourself out, how the hell are you going to call somebody else out? Mm -hmm. Can I get an amen? Amen. Oh, God. So welcome back. Uh, Great to be back. (laughs) So audience, dear listeners, uh, this week, Elaine is not going to be available. She's going to be dealing with some health issues with uh, baby Wes. Don't worry. He's doing fine. He's um, just going to have his mom out for a little while while she focuses in on her family. So luckily this week, we get to have Corey back. Yeah, well, it's all in my plot to become a fan favorite uh, here on Storybroke. I am Fetch, and I am going to make myself happen. Well, I, I think you have, I think you're a fan favorite already. So that's, that's your set. Um, also, like, just as far as I'm concerned, you're my favorite guest we've ever had. I'm the only guest you've ever had. Hush. Uh, so... <laughs> So uh, this week, we're not going to be talking about Once Upon a Time. If you read the uh, the title of the episode, we are talking about Disney's Descendants, specifically the first movie in the Descendants trilogy, Descendants. <laughs> I am in great how, how pain. Feel about, <laughs> like I was about to ask, like, how do you feel about me as a person asking you to do uh, this? You know, I never uh, gave much thought to the whole Descendants thing. I watched some reviews on YouTube from people like Musical Hell, Rantasmo, Hannah Bales, The Vocal Coach, all great creators. And I didn't think I would have anything else to contribute to that conversation. But I have so many thoughts. Cannot wait. Uh, yeah, like, so for me, I had seen this. Um, I saw this when it came out, and I only watched the first one. I was like, okay, so this is not for me. I hate this. Uh, so then I put it on when we decided to do this for the episode again to like actually watch it and give it like a fair shake and maybe like do that whole thing and fell asleep about 30 minutes in, maybe. So finally got around to watching it twice in the last 24 hours, and uh, I'm in hell. I'm in hell. Right there uh, with you. I feel like we should I acknowledge s- <laughs> to the audience that we are not the target demo for this piece of media. This is a no. Disney Channel original movie uh, made for babies and tweens. <laughs> so, yes. Now, yeah, I, I would have watched this when it was airing if I were the right age, but I was watching, you know, Halloween Town, uh, Zetus Lapidus, what's it called? Xenon uh, Zenon Girl of the 20... 20- Yes. Um, so speaking of, of movies with pop songs that are actual bangers, Xenon Girl of the 21st Century. Love that one. Yeah. So let's talk about the actual, uh, the actual thing, the, the beast that we have witnessed before us. I think you wanted to start with characterization during this. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know where to start. So characterization is really probably the best. So the premise of Descendants 
is that it's the kids of these iconic villains. You know, pretty simple. Some villains more iconic than others. Yeah. <laughs> and some villains more recognizable than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like our, our, so our main cast is going to follow um, Carlos, the son of Cruella de Vil. Jay, sorry, Jay, the son of Jafar, which I have problems with. Evie, the son of the, the daughter of the evil queen, and Mal, the daughter of Maleficent, and she's arguably our main character. Yeah, and you will notice a very interesting uh, naming convention. Mm-hmm. Everybody has names that sound like their parents. Except Carlos. Except, uh, who's about the closest thing? I don't know what else I would have named Cruella's son to make it. Maybe Chris, I don't know. Um, Chris, Chrisella. Um, what about, what if he were like a, uh, oops, all girls, uh, except for Jay, and he was like Evelina or like Nastina or something like, I don't know. Evie kind of already has the evil part covered. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's short for Evelyn. <laughs> Evelyn. I thought Mal might be short for like Mallory or something, but apparently I looked it up and it's actually Maleficent Jr. <laughs> Maleficent Jr. Which fits with Maleficent's characterization. Yeah, I think um, all of these parents are case studies in uh, narcissistic parenting um, to reference Lindsay Ellis's video on uh, narcissism (laughs) and Loki. So I think it's sort of apropos, I guess, that they have these uh, names that are reminiscent of their parents, but it's not just them. It's every child character in this every single one i think that that's a convention that's been established mostly to let our audience of uh, you know our tweens essentially very quickly like recognize like okay this is this person this is this person and they're meant to stand in for their parent essentially and it's very quick like when they start meeting the kids at oridon they introduce themselves instantly as like i'm doug dopey son when they meet Lonnie, she's like, my name is Lonnie, Mulan's daughter. And like, as if that's supposed to mean something to these kids. Like, oh, yeah. so many of them are only defined by who their parent is. Also, it's it's odd because arguably the the biggest villain, according to the show, is Maleficent. But Maleficent isn't the villain of our main, like, good guy leaders. So I feel like that's a little weird. Like, I I think that we did a good job with Once Upon a Time, since we follow Snow White and Prince Charming's daughter in that storyline, our main villain is the Evil Queen. She, she has a connection to the parents. But in this one, it's... Belle and the Beast and Gaston's kid is nowhere to be seen. Yeah, I think it would have been interesting if they had done sort of like once does with amalgamating certain characters. If maybe Maleficent was the enchantress at the beginning of Beauty and the Beast. Because turning a kid into a beast for not wanting to let her into his house is something Maleficent would do. Um, Yeah. But they, you know, for brand name recognition and everything, they keep everything very separate and distinct. Um, yes. You know, I didn't even think about making Maleficent the Enchantress, but that works. That would have made so many things in this movie just make a little more sense. Like having her be the antagonist of multiple people's stories. 
I mean, that's essentially what they did for Kingdom Hearts. Maleficent is the big bad of the Disneyverse in Kingdom Hearts. Why not? You know, you've already done this with your own properties. I, I don't know. It, it was it was a little fuzzy, uh, though. I will say that every single one of these adult actors who are playing the villains know exactly what kind of movie they're in. Yeah, they're just having fun. Kristen Chenoweth looks like she's having a ball. I. It took me a while to embrace this new campy Maleficent. Um, and I guess I am okay with it. However, none of the villains are particularly intimidating. No. Like, I would be okay with her being this, like, you know, over-the-top hammy villain if she was still as scary as she is in Sleeping Beauty. But I do not buy that she is that much of a threat or that any of these villains are that much of a threat. No, it's it's Kristen Chenoweth with uh, metallic lipstick. And I mean, they introduce her. Her first scene, you know, she comes in and she's behind these two men and they part and the camera has to pan down because she is, you she's know, so short. a very small person. And it just like takes the oomph out of it right away. Yeah, between her new costume and how short she is and how hammy her performance is, we basically have a Maleficent that's a crossbreed between Rita Repulsa and Invader Zim. <laughs> yes, very that. Hey, and it's very odd how, um, the, the to me, it's very odd with uh, the costumes that do get changed versus the ones that don't. Cruella DeVille's costume, completely changed, and for the worse, oh, it's so bad. in my opinion. I don't mind Maleficent's costume change because you have to give her some shape um, for, for the kind of production this is yeah. it looks kind of cheap the purple one she wears at the beginning i don't like and i feel like they made it purple so there'd be visual continuity between her and mal the black one she wears during her big number is better yes and it looks more like the original which is a strong choice however i feel so bad for kathy najimi in this very clearly Halloween store evil queen costume. Like it is straight up that, you know, between her outfit and Tyra Banks's outfit on villain night on dancing with the stars recently, it really only shows that the cowl that the queen wears only looks good in animation. It doesn't look good on an actual human being. Um, I, I, I feel like it could with the right building you have to build up and you have to have a big enough crown to make that work. Like in the, in the movie, in the movie, she's got like a, a crown that's built up to give her some lines. And she, the uh, animated character is so tall that it, it really creates this imposing effect with her huge cloak. But when they do it in, in these movies and in, you know, Tyron dancing with the stars, there's not enough to balance it. And it just looks bad. It looks cheap. Like the materials even that they use in this look cheap. Yeah, they they look like Hot Topic Halloween costume versions of themselves is what they look like. Um, the kids stuff especially looks like real, you know, it's what eight-year-olds think edgy looks like. Oh, yeah. It gets like, better over the course of the film. Mm-hmm. The stuff they wear in the opening number, I don't care for it. No. And the villain parents' outfits look very bad as well. I And because I think for the most part the villain parents have the one costume we will see them in during the movie, with the exception of Maleficent. And I feel like this this movie's budget was 
I don't know, $8, $9? Yeah. And I looked on the, on the internet because I wanted to find out who to blame for this movie. They only had one costume person to design everything for everyone. Oh, well, that does explain why the kids' costumes are kind of consistent. I don't mind the villain kids' costumes uh, as much. I, I think that they're they have their their pluses and minuses. They're imaginative. Like I'll Jay's. give them that. They're imaginative compared to the Oridon Prep Kids outfits, yeah, which were just uh, boring just, at best. It's it's just white people clothes. It's like everyone's wearing khakis and button downs and i hate it i hate it so much yeah like the freaking fairy godmother looking like an elementary school vice principal imagine her showing up to cinderella looking like that that's another <laughs> thing about the world building is that i cannot imagine the character the pre-existing characters existing in their stories as they are it just does not look right like the internet exists in this world i'm imagining bell wandering the west wing at beast castle asking cogsworth for the wi-fi password thinking like i i I mean i knew what we were in for from the intro to this experience mm -hmm. when they talk about how the kingdoms uh all voted to make someone else the king of the united states of oradon I, I knew what I was in for. Yeah. And uh, I have so many questions about their yeah. government. I we can get into that more in world building. Let's I feel like we're getting off yeah. track with the character. Yeah, so with like characterization, I don't mind the characterization of of uh I don't I don't know why I blank every time I almost say her name. I almost I keep wanting to call her the blue fairy. And it's because our once upon a time blue fairy is cast in this as Belle. Um yeah, Keegan Connor Tracy, who plays Blue, uh, is cast as Belle. I find her interpretation of Belle, um, and it's not much of one because she doesn't have many lines, no. a little constipated. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only thing I have to say about it. <laughs> I would have rather use her in another part, but I feel the same way about Kathy Najimy as, uh, as the evil queen. I really wish that she had played this this character um <laughs> I the, keep, fairy the fairy godmother i wish that she had played the fairy godmother yeah. because i feel like for the fairy godmother they were looking for a kathy najimi type and they wound up not using kathy najimi <laughs> like, yeah the, the evil queen was a waste of whose her name i'm probably butchering it was it was a waste because she's doing so much in the background of every single one of like the three scenes she's in. And it's like, you have this great comedic actress. Why are you misusing her so much? Yeah. The three villainous lady parents are like a bunch of old aging drag queens all working at the same crummy dive bar. And then Jafar is just like the bartender who doesn't even like drag and he's just there for the job. I feel like Jafar's characterization might be a little racist. Yeah, a little bit, especially when he and Jay are the only Middle Eastern characters. He's kind of playing it like the merchant at the beginning of Aladdin, um, who's like telling you the story of the lamp, and it's kind of a caricature. But then you have the rest of the ensemble, who are also Middle Eastern, 
and that kind of mitigates it a bit. We don't have that here. Right. And what's even wilder is that, okay, so Boo Boo Stewart, who plays Jay, is not Middle Eastern. He is uh, he is Asian, uh, Russian, Scottish, and Blackfoot, Native American, you know, an indigenous person. He was in Twilight. Yeah, I was looking I, at him and I didn't know. And I was like, he's really serving us like a Jacob from Twilight movie one. And lo and behold, I look at his filmography <laughs> and he's he was, in he Eclipse. Was in- and I was like, well, there you go. Makes sense. Um, uh, I recognized him from that because I uh, secretly love those movies for how terrible they are. I love bad media, as you can tell from the Once Upon a Time podcast we're recording for. Yeah, my um, likes on my dating profile under movies should really just say crimes, sins, and abominations, um, <laughs> of which Descendants is one. Oh, God, yeah. So, like, I'm going to talk a lot of crap about this movie, but the second we're done recording, I'm going to watch the other two parts. Like, yeah, we immediately. should definitely record episodes on the other two because I'm oh, invested now. I want to yeah, know. I have to, I have to get through this now. I have to know how it goes, even though, oh, God, it's bad. But yeah, I so like right off the bat, I feel like his characterization as being uh, let's talk about the kids. So I'll start with him mm-hmm. as being the thief, being kind of a street rat, being an urchin. Yeah, it's a lad. Like he's, thing. he's playing evil Aladdin, but he's Jafar's son. I, I think it would have been a stronger choice in the writing to make him the son of Captain Hook. Then the stealing would make sense. The stealing, the violence. The, the womanizing. Yeah. Or as as close to womanizing as we can get in a Disney film. He's definitely turning which, on the Flynn Rider smolder whenever he wants something from a girl. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Either that, or if they yeah. wanted Jafar, they should have gone with a characterization that reflects Jafar as we know him from the movie, which is um, a focused on power, sorcerer. focused on being number one, um, and having to unlearn those values that his father instilled in him. Like, if you're going to use these kids as the children of these iconic villains, you would want to think about how each of these villain's parenting would influence these kids, like what they would logically produce. Like, um, Evie, I think is the best one in terms of relating their character to their parent. Like she is vain and she kind of has to learn that she has more to offer than just how pretty she is. I think that makes enough sense. Uh, Mal, I feel like, you know, her main conflict is not wanting to disappoint Maleficent Mm-hmm. by not being evil and i feel like that works but i feel like there could be more to it like maleficent's character is she's very petty and she's very vindictive i don't like this world domination thing that they've got going on um in which our america analog is the whole world yeah it's like because we use world and oradon interchangeably yeah so i guess beast is just king of the world the fascist king of the world <sighs> We can get to the moral implications of the Isle of the Lost later. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, which I do have to just like to all I, all I have to say, because he's not really a character other than being a fascist. Uh, keeping that Disney tradition of the human version of bees being completely unfuckable to me. Yeah, that. 
He is I should have worn I should have worn piece my, uh, of driftwood uh wearing a Burger King crown. That is this that is the beast that we get. And he's not given a name. He's called King Beast in all of the synopses online. Like he has a semi canonical yeah. name, Prince Adam, that gets used sometimes. They could have just gone with that, but King Beast. All right. King Beast. But yeah. yeah. But yeah, back to the kids' um, characterization. You would think that Mal, as Maleficent's daughter, would have to struggle to overcome things like being petty and being vindictive and, you know, sort of the feeling like she has to show people up that slight her. And maybe that's like her character growth. Um, if you really want to have JB Jafar's kid, you know, make that be about power and being about um, like an inferiority complex that he feels like he has to, you know, one up people, especially Carlos. Carlos is the one who gets it the worst. Carlos is barely a character. He's, he is. He's the son of Carlos. Yeah. And his character arc is solely about overcoming his fear of dogs. And that is the shallowest way to look at Cruella, I think, I may have seen in adaptations. Are we now calling out the Cruella movie that was just made where that's her motivation too? She's afraid of dogs? That's No, she, like, she has like no opinion of dogs. Like even like they kind of present it like with the dogs killing her mom spoilers that this is going <laughs> to inspire some mom, kind okay. of hatred of dogs. She doesn't hate dogs. She has two dogs with her while she's um, doing her like all of her twist thieving or is it just one? I think it's two. And then she adopts the three Dalmatians. I think they're the same three Dalmatians that killed her mom. And then she gives yeah, the puppies to Roger and Anita. Like, there's no nothing in this movie suggests that she doesn't like animals, um, which I feel is an Actually, overcorrection from where she was before. Like in, in this movie, she apparently loves Dalmatians. She has her her only character trait, other than being manic, is having a stuffed Dalmatian on her shoulder. That she refers to as baby. She talks and, to it like it's real. And uh, she has instilled that dogs are vicious, dangerous creatures to her son, Carlos, which we don't see happen, really. He just brings it up at every chance he can get. Um, because otherwise, again, his only other character trait is uh, desperately grasping onto the nearest boy that he sees, which... When I was a uh, uh, 13-year-old queer child, yeah, that was uh, me as well. Like, any excuse to um, touch a boy. The number of times he jumps into Jay's arms in this movie, I'm like, mm. hi, sis. <laughs> yeah, uh, I shouldn't be talking this bad about, I think, the only actual child actor in this movie. But I feel so bad for him. Like, he's done dirty. Yeah. You would think, you know, actually analyzing Corella as a character... As you know, beyond the surface of she wants to turn dogs into a coat, she's a character who is extremely materialistic, and mm -hmm. she is a rich woman who is used to throwing money at any problem or at anything she wants, and if she can't get it, she loses her mind. A kid produced by that woman 
should be this hybrid of Draco Malfoy and Veruca Salt that throws mm-hmm. a temper tantrum whenever they're denied something and threatens people with their scary mother and they have to learn to stop being such a spoiled brat. That would be like the logical character arc for a Cruella kid. And yeah, work animals into that somehow for the iconography. But all they really care about is the iconography with these characters. They don't really care about like getting to their actual essence. Right. And and for some of them, again, like Jafar and again, like Cruella DeVille, they don't even care about that. Like the evil queen gets some characterization. And I mean, none of these characters are on screen enough for us to probably spend half an hour talking about them. But because they inform the choices our main cast has to deal with so much, it is, it is frustrating that they uh, don't seem to exist. And outside of, outside of Mal, none of them really get much of an arc. Mal is our only character who actually has anything resembling an arc. Maybe uh, Evie at times, but no one else. Which is really frustrating in a two-hour movie. Yeah, like, they have, you know, Carlos and Jay doing things on screen. None of it amounts to anything meaningful. Except for me reading gay subtext into it, which I will say when we get when we get to the plot, um, there was a scene where I was like, there's no heterosexual explanation for this. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. So uh, without any context, I showed the scene to my husband and he looks at me and is just like, that boy gay. I'm like, right? Right? <laughs> like, yeah, there's a lot of gay subtext in this series from what I've read. Um uh, Mal and Evie are a popular ship, I hear. Um, I can see and it. And I hear there's like, you know, if we decide to make this into a series, um, the son of Gaston and Jay apparently get some strong subtext later on, which is odd because you would think that Carlos would be the um, <laughs> the go-to for like denser queer coding. Um Oh yeah, uh, just straight up. Uh, there's a scene with he- him and Ben where I like immediately texted Corey, like, "Okay, this is actually my pairing because these two have more believable romantic chemistry uh, as as young gay kids than any any other romantic pairing in this movie." Period. Period. At all. Yeah. Ben calls Carlos a good boy. He calls Carlos a good boy after Carlos talks about not getting many belly rubs on the island. And I'm like, oh, my God. It feels like the Folgers Christmas commercial, if people know what I'm talking about, where it's like, I know you I'm sure you didn't write this as romantic, but that's how you filmed it. Yes, because like very much again, as someone who grew up as a, as a little queer baby, um, I identified with that scene. Like that scene resonated with me so hard, even like as an adult in my thirties, like seeing that I was just like, I've been here. I've been in this moment. Ah, so moving on from characterization, should we, let's talk about the world building a little bit. Yeah. This is a very lazily constructed world. I, 
much like a lot of made-for-TV Disney movies, yeah, it's set like, in this present day. A uniquely bad thing <laughs> in terms of it's it's how they decided to construct the world that like okay, you have all these stories from different time periods and different parts of the globe, and you want to put them together in the same thing while maintaining the integrity as much as possible of the original story. Yes. And it's just high school. It's just yeah, a private just high like, school with modern technology. Maleficent like struggles with a remote control at one point. Um, they've apparently banned magic for the most part, for some reason. Yeah, magic's in the past. Like, oh yeah, like we just keep magic around for aesthetics, really. We don't really do magic anymore. And there's no real reason for it. It's just, you know. Yeah, and they have created this weird fascist government, which is apparently global, um, where the villains are all sent to a penal colony that they are magically barricaded from leaving, and their children are forced to live there too because the government of Oridon seems to think that they are genetically predetermined to be bad, and... It's eugenics! Yeah, like straight up, like, and what really bothers me about it is we see the the slum island, and there's a there's a lot of people there. Like these all can't be full on Disney villains; they're just people. Uh, which leads me to believe that this was a previously like occupied place, and they sent the villains there and walled it off. And the people who were living there were just kind of it's Arkham stuck. City. It's Arkham City, yes. That's what it is. It's, and you have uh, Kristen Chenoweth playing the Joker. <laughs> I, okay, I won't say, I don't think her performance was that camp, but it is pretty high camp. Yeah, maybe the like even like, mm, Yeah. I, I feel like her performance uh, was very, felt a little derivative of Eartha Kit Catwoman <laughs> without the cat puns. You know, I kind of felt, and uh, Rantasmo of Needs More Gay also said that Corella kind of felt sort of Eartha Kitt-ish. Mm. And I would actually like to have seen a 101 Dalmatians with Eartha Kitt in the lead. I feel like she would have been very good at that. Um, I would like to see anything with Eartha Kitt in it, honestly. I loved, I love her. Rest in peace, Eartha Kitt. Yeah, uh, the best we've got is Emperor's New Groove, but that is an excellent, excellent adventure comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so... In terms of the world building as well, so we have magic, we have technology, but apparently not on the island. They very specifically say in the intro, which is a storybook, but when the storybook opens, it's actually just a storybook iPad cover. Uh, hate. Uh, How do you do, I got so bothered by that. (laughs) I know, like... I got so bothered by that for a minute, and then I realized how I had written a whole paragraph that was basically "Father, I cannot click the book," and had to sit down. And, uh, <laughs> but they say, okay, there's no Wi-Fi on the island. The villains aren't super aware of technology, and no one on that island is really aware of technology. Yeah, they Hopefully have they a have fridge that they use as a safe, and Maleficent doesn't know how right. to open it. <laughs> But Cameron Boyce, who is the actor um, who played Carlos, I say played um, because unfortunately that actor did pass away at 20, which is really so freaking young and really, really deeply upsetting. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, But his character 
is good at computers, which comes in handy twice in the plot and is never addressed or mentioned. It's just he's good at computers. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it'll come up in the second or third movie. I'm looking forward to suffering through them. Yeah, like he has like a secret aerial grotto um, in the Island of the Lost where he just keeps all of his contraband electronics. And that's just it's like serial experiments laying in there. Um, (laughs) I want to see his serial experiments laying cave. Just like huge hyper uh, water cooled things. Wait, have you seen you? You're not an you're not an anime sicko. I mean, I'm a casual anime sicko. <laughs> I'm not going to gatekeep anime sickodom. Um, I don't think that is a thing we can do on this podcast. That's a different show where people get to establish themselves as anime sickos. Yeah. Hi, Joe. Hi, Tom. Um, <laughs> They're never going to listen, listen to this. To- <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but yeah, so the world building is, is weak. Uh, you described it to me as the most absolutely boring interpretation of this kind of world possible. Yeah, and Something that's I- not... That's including Once Upon a Time, which gave us fairy tale characters in like a fishing Maine. town in Maine. <laughs> which I, I like that. I especially like it now that we're into season two, where there are fairy tale characters trying to exist in Podunk, Maine. I'm enjoying that. Uh, this is not well handled. This is just very odd, very disparate. And they're, I, it's very much in that Disney Channel movie style of just don't look at it too hard. Sort of like, again, Halloween Town, where all the monsters live. And it's just some town in Canada where people wear rubber masks. Or Xenon Girl of the 21st Century, where the city is just a city from the late 90s. Yeah. Everything gets like filmed in Earth Canada. City. The castle that they use for Oridon Prep, it's Hatley Castle in Victoria, B.C., and it's also the same place that they filmed the X-Men movies. They use it as the queen estate on Arrow. They filmed so much stuff at this one place. They really should have done anywhere else because it's a very recognizable building at this point. It's like the uh, the murder house from American Horror Story, which has been seen in so many other shows. But I think at this point now you can't use it because it'll just be recognizable as the murder house from American horror story. But yeah, so in terms of world building, there really isn't much magic works in Oridon, but not on the Island, except when it does, which means that magic maybe doesn't work because of the barrier possibly. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know. (laughs) I do not have a good answer. I'm not sure there is an answer. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so at this stage, I think because of the lack of world building, we don't have a lot to talk about regarding it. So let's move into the plot of this movie, the actual like meat of it, which is these four kids, because of another kid who is about to become king, get to go to the prep school, get to leave their uh, three generations penal colony and go into the regular world. But only these four kids. And also everyone's going to keep an eye on them. Yeah, they have to take remedial goodness class, which is the most patronizing thing I think I've ever seen. Which I I love that this castle is just like a badly lit McMansion throughout the whole thing. But yeah, the remedial goodness class, that's a microaggression. (laughs) And the fact that the teacher is making the teacher who's making them do it, the the 
fairy godmother, one of the first things she tells us in the plot is uh, don't focus on the past or you'll miss the future. Okay, ma'am, that's your entire MO is focusing on the past of these kids' parents. How dare you? Yeah. We don't need that line. We could have gotten more Carlos J. Jock Twink uh, solidarity, but no. We could have had maybe a backstory or any arc for any of the other main characters. No, but we had to have the remedial goodness class, which I do love Mal figuring out how to get out of immediately, which is uh, just say whatever sounds like the least amount of fun. Yeah, that that line was funny. Also, the line when the, when the godmother first tells her about the class and she's like, so is that class new? <laughs> like, we know what you're doing. We know what you think of us. You're not yeah, subtle. Yeah, I mean, like straight up, Dove Cameron carries half this movie on her back. Yeah, this, I like her. She's very talented. So I'm kind of excited to see her play Glinda in Wicked. Um same she's got a good voice and she she's she's got a lot going on with her characterization of a character that's not super fleshed out in this movie so i enjoyed her a lot i also liked evie sophia carson who often feels like she is channeling uh uh rebecca the evil queen regina you mean Regina? what the fuck did you i said say rebecca. rebecca oh my god it's 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 been a, it's been my my brain is poison. I've only been doing a Once Upon a Time podcast for this long. Yeah, no, it feels like she's she's channeling Regina fairly often um, in her characterization of Evie, which I kind of like, especially once she comes into her own and is okay with being smart. She has these little smirks and these little moments of being manipulative and these standing up straight intense glares that she'll give other characters while smiling. And I'm like, you're a oncer, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I like you that were she really uses the magic mirror be- kind of like an iPad. That's how I feel like this should have handled, you know, trying to bridge modernizing the vibe of the movie with the source material. Like, not actually having TVs and stuff, but like having magical equivalents. Um, that, like, oh, that's God. what I do when I... Um, handle D and i want to have something that feels modern i just find a magical way to do it yeah um, you use magic as a plot contrivance yeah. like you're in a fantasy world and can do that yeah and so you can be not cheeky doing it. with it and be like yeah. <laughs> it's like yes uh link's chica slate is just an ipad that can freeze water you know <laughs> it is and summon bombs mm-hmm. and summon bombs Oh, it's a Samsung. That's why. <laughs> too, is that is that too dated? I ha- I have an S nine. Thank you. Okay, where were we on the plot? <laughs> oh God, getting lost. Um, um, so you know, we can just kind of start at the start at the top. The, the kids go to the island. Go leave the island uh, and the, under yellow, Maleficent's yellow brick Bifrost is what I call the bridge <laughs> on the yellow brick Bifrost, which. That is a fun scene of them all in the car. Uh, they're just like getting to be kids experiencing like candy for the first time as teenagers, which is funny. Even the I enjoy stole candy from a baby at the end of the first song. Yes. Uh, we've discovered Reese's, which uh, 
This child has never discovered Reese's until this moment. My heart weeps. I love Reese. That's my favorite candy. I love Reese's too. <laughs> but this like, oh, does that button like open up the barrier? No, this button does. And this one closes the <laughs> closes the window. And, and Mal just turns around. She's just like, he's nasty. I like him. It's good. It's good characterization. Yeah, it's cute. not overdone. Yeah. It works well on the small screen. Uh, it was fun. It was fine. There's a lot of like good goofiness, especially for its audience. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of this movie, when we first get to Oridon Prep and introduce ourselves to the rest of the cast, essentially. Yeah, and then they get uh, just this wall of shade once they get out of the limo. And I love that Mal knows exactly how to um, girl fight in public. Oh, yeah. The instant uh, female hostility between her and Audrey. (laughs) Audrey is just the person at the beginning of every Hallmark Christmas movie who exists to get broken up with by the protagonist so they can be with the new, more interesting love interest. She is Kristen Stewart's girlfriend at the start of Happiest Season, only Kristen Stewart never breaks up with that girlfriend. Which, you know what? Maybe having our uh, one of our only... <laughs> our only um, non-white people in the cast, our only, like really are one of our only biracial people in the cast uh, be one of the primary antagonists of this movie is a bad look. Yeah. I mean, are there any characters in this movie who aren't villains or being, were coded as villains? Uh, sorry, let me rephrase this. Blah. Are there are there any people of color in this movie that aren't coded as villains? Lonnie. However, um, now I know that pe- everyone's outfits, especially the kids, are meant to evoke who their parent is and the movie that they're from. However, Lonnie's outfits really serve to um, basically single her out as the Asian kid. Yes. And it's it's once again a thing where I'm like, I'm white, but can I say this is racist? Because this feels this feels pretty racist. It feels it feels like not a good look, sis. Yeah, it. I was like, it's rough. It's rough. Yeah, I felt that like yeah. I'm gonna start that over. Like she even has like a she even has like a vaguely Asian inspired version of the school uniform on at all times, and it's sort of like, but why though? Yeah, I felt looking at her the way I felt watching thoroughly modern Millie. It was like, is this okay? Is this, <laughs> is this feel okay? <laughs> this doesn't. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it really sucks because I do love Sarah Jeffrey, who I'm told she does come back as Audrey in the third movie as a as an antagonist. Um, but I do really enjoy her. I like New Charmed uh, because once again, I love trash and New Charmed is trash, but it's watchable fun trash. So I was so happy when I saw her come in. I was like, oh my God, it's her. Okay. I really want to get to the song. So... Um... Let's kind of like steamroll through the rest of the plot. Uh, 
Okay, they, yeah, I mean, we have recorded 50 minutes of audio, and we have not talked about the songs yet, which is in keeping with the production of this movie. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, they break into this museum, which was clearly filmed at, like, a public library or something, um, to try and steal the wand. They can't do it because it's magically protected, so they have to wait till Ben's coronation when the fairy godmother will use it to bless him. Um, and so they start to meet their classmates and sort of build a rapport with them. For some reason, mm-hmm. Mal starts giving out magic hair makeovers, even though you'd think that would be Evie's thing. Um, right. But it's, it's how Mal becomes popular. Yeah. Like she begins to, and she's using magic for good and it's making her happy. And I think that's mostly her character arc is not having to, Acknowledging that, yes, she has this capacity, but being able to choose how she uses her magic and what she does when she interacts with people, I think that's her primary character arc is realizing, yeah, I mean, it's very clear. Her character arc is, actually, I want to be good and I can choose to be good. Yeah, they make it very clear in the uh, climax of the film that that's what it's about. The dialogue is so on the nose. Um <laughs> And then, of course, she hatches this plan. She's going to love Potion Ben, which is just as problematic as it is in Harry Potter. Um, only it's not because she wants to date him. It's because she just wants to get close enough to the wand at his coronation to grab it. Um, She's there to gaslight gatekeep girl boss her way to that wand. Yeah. But later on, she starts falling in love with him and she feels bad about it. So she makes an anti-love potion and gives it to him. And the weirdest part about that is he's already been disenchanted by the enchanted lake that he stripped down to his boxers and swam in when they went on their no, cute had, little date. It was definitely an actual swimsuit because the length and because it had drawstrings. Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. Weird that he would have that on unless he knew they were going swimming. Yeah. Um, but he he is under the impression that she did it because she has a crush on him, but he's totally cool with that. I was like, I didn't even know what to say to that plot development. That was a yikes. That was a quick hand wave away. Uh, and I wanted to read the books along with the movies to see how they compared. The book, the first book in this series came out a month before this movie came out. So I don't believe that these movies are necessarily like based on the books. I think they were created concurrently um, because Disney is really good at, you know, marketing a piece of media on multiple platforms yes. and in multiple contexts. Um, Cause it's a middle grade book. And I've heard that they're actually pretty good middle grade books. Uh, I wanted to check it out, but unfortunately all of the copies we have at our local library were checked out. So I hear they do flesh some things out a bit more and tell us a bit more of the lore. I think I think it's said that all the villains that died in their respective movies get brought back to life just so they can put them on the island. Yeah, and there there's like a prequel book, and in the prequel book, like Ben's character um doesn't love Audrey has been wanting to look for a way out of this relationship. And he's been dreaming about a girl with purple hair. So that's why when he sees Mal in the movies, he's like, it's her. I know you. I walked with you once upon Upon a dream. 
Oh, that's as much of that as we can sing because Disney. Uh, yeah. So yeah, TLDR, we get to the coronation. The fairy godmother's child is actually the person who grabs the wand in a surprising twist. I hate it. I hate it too. And somehow um, it, in just waving it around, she manages to aim it perfectly at the island and lift the spell, which is surely a very strong spell if it can contain Maleficent. Bring it down. Maleficent fast travels to the ceremony using our green once upon a time smoke. And... (laughs) And like goes, I'm back, like channeling Ethel Merman or something. <laughs> Which we'll talk about that in a sec with her song. There's a lot of that there. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah, it's so odd. It makes no sense. It's like, I know I, they had to get some way to drop the barrier without the villain kids doing it because they've had this change of heart. But I don't know. Yeah, it just, it felt awkward. Like, maybe even, maybe even come up with some contrivance to where Mal has to hold the wand, and she does break the barrier and immediately regrets it. Or, like, so in that moment when she does have to decide between her mother being evil or being good, it feels more like a choice as opposed to an, inev- an inevitability. Yeah. Like, And then we get the showdown where Maleficent freezes everyone in the room, except for uh, the four villain kids. And she, you know, tries to convince Mal to give her the wand. Um, well, first she hits on the beast. And then she screws around with some people who are all frozen solid, which is actually kind of funny that they were able to pull that off. She also hits on Jay. Yeah, it's kind of vaguely implied. Like she compares him to Gaston when he like grabs at her scepter. And it's like this guy, this character is a teenager. And you know that because he's friends with your daughter. And because of this very scattered way we're talking about this, I didn't get to share with you my absolute favorite J line, which is like his first or second actual spoken line, which is, uh, I don't do uniforms unless it's leather. Am I right? What do you mean by that? What? Uh, so, <laughs> oh, speaking of what do you mean by that? Remember when they're having like the teleconference with the kids and the fairy godmothers on it and Maleficent says to the fairy godmother, still doing tricks with eggplants? <laughs> There's what so many lines in this mean? movie where I'm like, is that the joke that I think it is? Is, she, I is know that, that her I, way of calling the fairy godmother a, you know what? <laughs> I don't even know. Like, it was a pumpkin, which now that I have this platform, it is the month of October, and I would like to address any homosexual gentleman uh, and people who draw uh, fan art uh, to stop drawing people having sex with pumpkins. Thank you. That's it. That's all I have. Pumpkins aren't sexy. You're welcome for that non sequitur. No one needs to see it. Yeah. I have not and- seen what you're talking about, but I agree and I approve that message. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, anyway, um, Mal has the wand and. She doesn't want to give it to Maleficent, and it leads to 
the second of two magic staring contests between Maleficent and Mal. The first happens at the beginning, and it's just when they're having this argument, and Mal loses, and this is meaningful somehow. I don't know. Yeah, we're and not then clear. The second I, I comes at the climax when Maleficent has turned into a dragon. As she do. And Mal is trying to cast some sort of spell to stop her mother. Um, and they basically defeat Maleficent with the power of the Care Bear stare. <laughs> I'm, I'm really mad that this Disney Channel movie didn't have enough of a budget to get a better CGI dragon. Because network TV did five years earlier. The CGI they could have just used dragon, the same assets from Once Upon a Time. It was. It looks. She looks better. She looks so much better. Works better. It looks bad in this movie, and it it looks. It looks like a PSP game. She looks like a PSP game. That's yeah. all. That's all I have. I, I hate it. And anyway, Mel defeats her with her magic and the power of friendship. Like this is my little freaking pony, and then. Maleficent turns into a tiny little lizard. <laughs> she gets turned into a bearded dragon that is purple and black for some reason. Uh, she's adorable. And she's tiny because that's the size of the love in her heart. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. And then Ben uh, gets coronated and they have a big dance party with fireworks and... They kiss, and it's all very heterosexual. And then Dove Cameron turns to the camera, and her eyes get all green again. And she says, you didn't think that was the end of the story, did you? Or something like that. And it's like, no, but I really wish it were. It's like, all right, optimistic. (laughs) Uh, And it's like, of course, they were going to make more because it's Disney. Oh, well, yeah, they were were trying to get a new high school musical. franchise out of this which they did they succeeded they They have the Um, might to do so they're disney they can do what they please like they saw ever after high and they were like we can do that and they did and then ever after high curled up and died (laughs) they did the same thing with once upon a time i heard that they wanted to adapt the fables graphic novels which is about fairy tale characters leaving fairy tale land and coming to settle in the modern world and they couldn't secure the rights. So they were like, fine, we're going to do our own fables with blackjack and hookers. And <laughs> there, there's a very good telltale game series, um, uh, game series, the wolf among us. World. Yes. The wolf among us. It's, it's, very, it's good. very, very good. Yes. Uh, highly recommend for those of you who were underwhelmed by, uh, the beast's human form at the end of the beauty and the beast, Bigby wolf, uh, might have you covered. <laughs> he does can confirm, uh, can confirm emphatically. Yes. Anyway. That's so all. that's the that's end. All. Like we missed a few plot elements like <laughs> Carlos and Jay playing sports. Carlos and Jay playing um, one of one of the worst uh, television interpretations of a video game I've ever seen, which is saying something because TV shows often have video game sequences sequences in them that are very clearly designed by someone who has never seen an video game. Mm-hmm. But this one is like next level. He's got like two sticks that he's waving around and i'm like did you see a Wii and think that's how games are or something yeah and then they're just playing fantasy lacrosse for some reason they can't 
they can't just call it lacrosse. They have to invent their own like Quidditch or Kelvin ball to yeah make this because, world a little more fantastical. Because um, Harry Potter has Quidditch, so we have to have our own version. Yeah, which is called Tourney. Which I don't know. I think it would have been better had they had just jousting. Just have jousting. Like embrace your fantasy setting and tie that into the modern world and have like some kind of high school standardized jousting. That would be fun. That would be something that required a budget though. Yeah. So that but they needed to, to do happen. a team sport because Jay's thing is that he's not a team player and he needs to learn about teamwork. <laughs> I guess because famously independent character Jafar who relied on no one to get anything done in his movies except that he had his his uh, his bestie Iago he relied on Aladdin to get the lamp Uh, he needed the genie to give him power he needed jazz princess Jasmine to become a king like I mean I think the genie took care of that Jasmine was basically just this uh, creepy it's rough. It's rough. And then yeah. the second movie, he needed that um, not great characterization of a man uh, to free him and do wishes and stuff. It's it's weird. The yeah. Aladdin sequel is is direct to video and also terrible in a delicious way. Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> that's the end of the story. Shall we get to the songs? Because oh my gosh. So this is this is ostensibly a musical. Yes. I do not think this is a musical. I think it's it is a technically movie. a musical. It's a movie with musical numbers in it. That is what I will give it. Because in my opinion, a musical requires the songs to be the vehicle which moves the plot forward. The The songs in this do not move the plot forward. No, they don't. Let's just go through the list. There are six original... No, there's five original songs, six including a reprise, and then we will get to... Be our guest towards the end. Our opening number, Rotten to the Core, is to me one of the strongest songs in the show, if not the strongest. I have different opinions about that. I I don't think it's a great song, but I think it's serviceable and the choreography is really fun. What I don't like, um, and I was texting you about this, is it suffers from the same problem I have with the musical Wicked, which is lustful singing. I don't know how else to describe it. It's where you have that horny pop voice where you can't like sing a note. You have to like moan the song a little bit. Cause yeah, I'm it's very like it. Britney, Christina. I don't know why I'm like <laughs> naming off like early 2000s stuff, but it's like, well, that's, oh, that's... baby, baby, how was I? You know, that kind of thing. Well, yeah, because I mean, like we have that with Michael Jackson and with Prince as well. But I think like generationally for us, Brittany and Christina were a big part of that um, and very clearly informed the musical stylings of this song's writer because every song has a different writer. Yeah. In this musical. It's, all, it's a giant hodgepodge. And I want to say that sometimes that can be okay. The SpongeBob SquarePants musical that was recently on Broadway um, which has every song is by a different artist. Sarah Bareilles did a song. John Legend did a song. They they make it work together and feel like it's meant to be part of the same score. The arrangers do a good job. Mm. However, this is not like that. And a lot of these people 
clearly have not written for theater before. Mm-hmm. Um, so the second song, Evil Like Me, is written by Andrew Lippa. He's a theater composer. He did Big Fish. He did The Addams Family. He did The Wild Party. He has the chops to do this kind of thing. I think Evil Like Me is my favorite song. Um, did I mention, which is the third one, it's sung by Ben while he's under the Hang influence on. of Love Potion. No, you Dr- can't just like stop at Evil Like Me like that. No, like, we'll, we'll circle back. Um, <laughs> uh, did I mention it's written by Adam Schlesinger of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. In my opinion, Adam Schlesinger and Rachel Bloom should have written the whole score together. <laughs> Um, and it would have been much more cohesive, but also have varying styles. Yeah, he's also the um, one of the people from Fountains of Wayne. For those who remember Stacy's mom, um, sadly he passed away last year due to complications of COVID. Um, yeah. But I love Crazy Ex Girlfriend. It meant a lot to me. It helped me out at a difficult time. But other than that, everything is like by random pop people. Um, who Disney has like a working relationship with. Um, but yeah, Rotten to the Core was done by people who've done a lot of pop work, like Disney's pop stars and their albums. Yeah. Um, in my opinion, it just feels like a bunch of inane, atonal dubstep couplets. And the kids are sort of like doing this Rex Harrison talk singing which most of them pull off. Um, Carlos, I don't feel like is getting the right energy. <laughs> but Carlos is the only one of these people who is also an actual child. Um, yeah. Cameron Boyce in this. The rest are all, you know, 20-somethings, I believe. Which is why I think it bothers me that the weakest in terms of nailing their choreography is is uh, our Twilight friend, Boo Boo Stewart. Yeah. He, he is... There's like a moment where they're all, and they use it in a lot of previews, where they're all up against a chain wall, and they all do an on the beat like body slide shift mm-hmm. thing. I'm not a I'm not a dancer, so I don't know the correct terminology. Um, and it's not good. Like yeah. he just doesn't do it, and the rest of them do it, and it's super awkward and stuck out to me. Uh, yeah, in a, in a didn't... bit where the rest of the choreography I thought was strong. I don't totally agree that they do that dance break where they get like the full ensemble dancing and it's all very pointed at one camera. So it feels like you're kind of watching a stage production Mm -hmm. for a bit and it's like this thrashy flash mob. And the thing I don't get about it is like none of these dancers are part of this like weird little gang escapade that the main kids are on. They just kind of show up to dance it reminded me of the song Consider Yourself and Oliver, which is I know is a really weird comparison, but it's like it's Oliver Twist and the Artful Dodgers convincing Oliver to join his little gang of children. Um, and they start singing the song, but then the entire company, like all the adults that are playing townspeople start like singing and dancing in the number. And it's like, what are you doing? You're not part of this. Why are you I- welcoming the child to the, the street gang? You're not... <laughs> Like, I, I like this. I, I, I just, I, I, because for me, it is a style of musical that I enjoy. So when I saw this scene, um, I was like, okay, this is going to be a teeny bopper musical. I can get on board with that. Like the song is serviceable. It's not high art, but I was like ready 
to watch a musical, which is why I was a little appalled when the next song didn't occur until half an hour into this two hour movie. Yeah. Another thing I didn't like about it, and it's part of what makes it conflict with other songs in the piece is that the lyrics don't feel like there's something that the characters would be thinking in that moment. Fair. It's like an expression of like an overall worldview, but it's like, who are you telling this to right now? Are you saying it to yourself? Are you saying it to me, the audience? Is it, are you saying it to someone next to you? I, right. Cause in a musical, this is our, this is our opening song, which means we're either going to establish the world itself and how it functions, or we're going to introduce our characters and what their deal is. And this song does neither. We have, I mean, a bunch it does of sort exposition. of introduce their deal and just, it introduces the fact that they're punks who like doing bad things. That's what we get. I feel like they should have done a song that was a big ensemble piece about how much it sucks to be a kid living on the Isle of the Lost, kind of like Hard Knock Life from Annie. Have Mm -hmm. it be led by the four leads, but also have like other kids participating because they relate to what's being sung about and not just show up to be random backup dancers. Fair. Maybe give each one of these kids individual moments in the song that they do get. Uh, let that moment be be something where they can establish more about their character. Mm-hmm. Then we live here in the slum. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In- we should probably move on because we're <laughs> starting to run out of time. I think. No, we're this. I'm. I'm expecting this to be close to the length of the damn thing. I'm not worried about that. Oh, okay. Um, so I, I broke you off. Did you want to talk a little more about the the score overall? Or are you ready to move forward? Because we are forgetting one song, uh, which is the I Shawn do want to talk about each, each song individually more. So okay. um, Evil Like Me, which happens like half an hour later. And I had watched a clip of this before I saw the movie. I expected that based on mal's little intro where she's expressing some internal conflict about whether she should be doing this or not that this was much later in the film yes i did not expect it to be this early when she really hasn't changed at all um and have you know maleficent appear to her i guess in her mind um to convince her to go through with stealing the wand um I strongly dislike this song. And I love Kristen Chenoweth. I love the way both of them perform the song. It's campy. What I don't love is that it's not clear uh, the context of where this is happening. Yeah, is this I don't like that aspect in, of it either. Like, is this happening in Mal's mind? And it's her mother's voice telling her, essentially, that you're evil like me? I feel like I it know. should have been a flashback. I felt like they should have committed to what they were doing with the song, which is to shamelessly rip off Eartha Kitt's I Want to Be Evil. I mean, there are like straight up lines in this song that are lifted verbatim from I Want to Be Evil. Like, st- 100% line by line within it. Not every line, but there are a few. And the tone is similar and i felt like maybe having her do a take on i want to be evil i mean that one's a little like sexy jazzy yes but the the 
the the concept behind it, which is mm-hmm. this character that Eartha Kid is playing where she's like, oh, I'm a bad girl. But like the things she's saying of I'm a bad girl are things like, I want to throw mud pies, you know, I want to cheat at Jack's would have been really fun of having this character who is failing at evil fairly often. She's not really good at being a bad girl because she feels crappy about it. Having her want to be evil and express that in a song may have been more effective as much as I love that we got to give Kristen Chenoweth a song. Yeah, I. it feels like they wanted to originally have it be all four villain parents. And then once they got Kristen Chenoweth, they were like, no, she needs a solo. Yeah. Um, we can't make Kathy Najimy sing next to Kristen Chenoweth or these other two people who I wish I could remember their names, but sorry, you're not on that level. Yeah. Some of the directions weird. Like at one point, Maleficent licks her scepter. She does the hang loose sign when she says cool. She's doing the absolute most. In I know. Oh, the evil footlights. This is another scene that's very theatrically <laughs> staged. And this one intentionally, because um, it's all at one angle, pretty much. So again, you feel like you're watching a play rather than watching a movie. Yeah. And then at the end, <laughs> she gets lifted into the air and she gets her own defying gravity moment and hits the Cheno note. I don't know how I feel about Maleficent as a soprano, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like if I'm not, I'm not going to get into it. It's, it's, it's not a great song, even in, even in the context of this. I feel like it's a lot more catchy and um, listenable to my ears than rotten to the core was (laughs) fair. I just, I, I prefer rotten to the core to this one. It's, it's just the lyrics also, the lyrics also feel more conversational. Like it's happening in this moment. Um, yeah. I don't have a lot to say about did I mention otherwise other than it felt like what it is a embarrassingly misguided promposal. Yes, that's that's yeah, that that's that's all I had to say about it. It served its function. Um, Adam Schlesinger knew the moment he was writing for. Um, I'm not sure I like the moment, you know, this plot that, you know, it's being put into, but for the plot. It worked and it was it was okay, so I didn't mind it. If only I felt was another one where I was like, okay, it's not great, but it's serviceable. And it's one of to me, it's one of the only songs in this musical that feels like it belongs in the tone of the story, which yeah. is it's a character monologue, it's advancing the plot, it, it's showing us a little bit more about the world at the same time. I liked it. It was fine. It's not great. Uh, I wish that they had a single uh, homosexual on set to teach anyone involved in this production how to lip sync. But look, yeah, we know that you're lip syncing. We know that this isn't all on a soundstage. Like, it's on a soundstage, but it's not sung on the soundstage. We know you're lip syncing. However, when you are lip syncing on film, this is a little bit of my background to share that you have to press air out of your lungs while you lip sync so that your throat moves so that your vocal cords look like they're moving so that in all these tight shots of your face, we don't notice 
that you're just mashing your lips around to the lyrics. Yeah, just like sing the song along with your track and they'll cut your sound out and, and dub it over. Like, <laughs> And it's so visible in movie musicals where they do that versus movie musicals where they don't. And this, it was, it was rough. It bothered the hell out of me during this. Yeah, the thing that bothered me the most... Well, first, there's the weird context that Ben is just like behind her in the lake swimming around while this is happening. Um, But also, it keeps cutting to these flashbacks of her and Ben. And it really only shows how underdeveloped the relationship is. Like some of the flashbacks were to moments prior while they were on this date together. And it's like. And I want to say that this song is what, like an hour into the movie at this point? Something like that. We're like a good ways into this movie when we have this song. And this song really just does a better job of establishing what evil like me was trying to establish, which is I'm conflicted. (laughs) Yeah. And then it gets a reprise when she's making the anti-love brownies or cookies or whatever. Um, I thought they were going into another song fully because I had already forgotten the tune of this song. Yes, it's not super memorable. Um, Dove Cameron sells it, though. She's a really good singer. Um, mm-hmm. She she carries it where it otherwise probably would have fallen flat. Um, I'd love to see her as Eponine in something. She'd be good at Eponine. Like, I'd like to see that. Like, yeah. She you know. was good. She was good in Hairspray. She was good in Schmigadoon. Um Speaking of hairspray, we'll get to hairspray in a second. Oh, yes. But first we have to talk about the big acapella no. elephant in the room. <laughs> the hip acapella. Be our guest. Hip- be our guest. I have many things to say about this. <laughs> would you like to hear them? <laughs> um, or would you like to go first? <laughs> This song made me racist against white people. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what I've got. Yeah, I've got further evidence that Glee was a mistake. Uh, this song gave me college acapella flashbacks. Uh, the whitest thing ever. This feels like Christian rock. Uh, was the music <laughs> major Mormon. Dopey's son is beatboxing. Why God, Why? Uh, Is Be Our Guest a published song in this universe? Does Lumiere have a writing credit? Someone put me (laughs) in my misery. That is what I have. (laughs) I hated it so much. So much. It was so bad. And and it's like the energy in it. It's like everyone in it knows it's bad while they're doing it because many of the singers and many of the extras in this look embarrassed to be there. Yeah, I was just like looking at the Beast and Belle being like, I don't know. Yeah. Like that's when because your kids are making a fool of themselves, but you want to look like you're proud. And that's because I believe with in the bottom of my heart, I enjoy her, but I think Connor uh Keegan Connor Tracy will do anything for a paycheck because th- that is the energy she brings to a lot of the things she's in. Uh see also the magicians. See also once upon a time. <laughs> You know, you which gotta did, put food on the table. <laughs> which sucks, because she's 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 great, and she's an enjoyable person to watch, but she always gets cast in this role of being like, I have no material, and I'm kind of here, and I guess I'll just work with that. Yeah. So this song 
I mean, none of the songs really add that much to the plot, but this song really did not need to be in here. Um, this song is one of the worst things that America has done culturally in our history. Um, I yeah, have to no. imagine that Howard Ashman is just spinning in his grave. If I, if I got a time machine after I killed Andrew Jackson, I would stop this song from happening. Okay, I can say I killed Andrew Jackson. Uh, he's been dead for over a century. <laughs> I did get I did get put in Facebook jail for three days once for saying that if I had a time machine, I'd go back in time and kill Andrew Jackson. <laughs> I, I got banned from Facebook for three days and a permanent flag on my account. Um, just Yikes. a fun fun fact. <laughs> okay. I had a thought, and <laughs> here comes a thought. <laughs> It. I'm trying to reel it back in. You might have to edit out this dead space. Um, oh, how many of the kids who watched Descendants do you think watched all of the or most of the original movies that they are referencing here? Because they came out in like the 90s or earlier. Beauty and the Beast came out in the early 90s. I Mid-90s? think a lot of I, th- I think a lot of them because Disney families, like the family that would that that would have let their kid watch this, and the kids that would be tuning into this, most likely have seen many of those Disney movies because you have to remember, like Disney markets the hell out of them. They do a big event every time a new media format comes out to re-release all of their old things before putting them back in the Disney vault. I think it's fair to say that they would have seen a good many of these. Like yeah. even like even me as a child, I you know, I was not born when Snow White or Sleeping Beauty came out, but I saw the hell out of those. Um, I also watched, um, I think I've said it on the podcast before, but I've watched Beauty and the Beast so many times that the original VHS copy I had wore out was unwatchable. We had to buy another VHS copy, which also eventually wound up in very poor condition because I would literally like put it on, then rewind it and then hit play again multiple times a day. I'm just thinking like if I was a kid who had recently been exposed to beauty and the beast and like the original not the remake with emma watson that's an entirely different topic (laughs) Mm, yeah we could probably do two hours on also um but and then seeing descendants do this hip-hop acapella thing look when i was a kid i did not always have a discerning taste in media there are things I look back on now with embarrassment that I liked as a child. So maybe I've kids. Seen cats honestly, live. What? I've seen cats live. I feel this. <laughs> so maybe kids do like this, even having seen the original, which I think most people would agree is superior. Um, but I don't know. I. <laughs> I would if you think wanna, that if yeah. I was a kid looking at this, I'd be like, what on earth are they doing? It do, it very much has the energy of when you're a kid and you see adults trying to do a thing they think will be cool and it's just lame. Like, that's how this felt. It's, like, it's youth pastor energy. 
it, it yes it is intense youth pastor energy and yeah that's that's it that's 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 the only way to describe that atrocity yeah i don't have too much to say about set it off it just feels like generic you can't stop the beat backwash um, yeah i i described it as a non-equity you you can't stop this beat yeah they're like doing you know we're all in this together but <laughs> even less profound than those lyrics like you could have put the song in the greatest showman and it would have made just about as much sense mm-hmm. they rhyme dna and born this way and it's like okay slow down gaga um <laughs> Which we can get into the queer subtext of this and talk about how like these kids were born with evil in them, but they choose to be good and how uh, deeply problematic that is. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. let's just say Evie's a great dancer. Uh, Carlos doesn't rap particularly well. Um the lyrics didn't have much to do with anything specific to the plot. Um, it it didn't hurt my ears. I got through it without uh, cringing or making any sounds of pain. So, um, but that is the highest praise I can really give it. Yeah, and there's there's like that's it. That that that's it. That's all of the songs in this musical. There's also a Sean Mendez song called "Believe." I didn't listen to the credit song. I did not either. The second this ended, um, normally I am weird about credits. Like I will watch the credits because those people worked hard to make this thing. But I don't feel that way about the Descendants. <laughs> I don't feel that way about this at all. Um, I think the only people who worked hard on this project were uh, Dove Cameron, Kathy, and Jimmy. And uh, Kristen Chenoweth. I mean, and, the kids oh God, gave it what they had. Actress. They looked yeah. happy to be there. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like I said, there's a reason why I don't go off about like some of the acting in this, which is rough. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of these people were children when this was filmed. Um, the people or who's acting very young talk- adults. Yeah. Once they're an adult, I will talk crap about them. Like Mitchell Hope as Ben serving us Helix Studios acting quality. Um, who And he looks like he might work for one of those gay porn companies where I'm like, uh, what did you... <laughs> I really need to double watch that little tagline that played at the beginning that assures me that these people are all 18. Because um, mm, he just has, he has, he has twink porn energy. I'm sorry. And if this gets us delisted from iTunes, I'm sorry, Elaine. I'm sorry. Corey is just like turning a d- brilliant shade of crimson on camera and I, I unable to speak. This message. Um, but yeah, it's it's really awkward. It's very stilted. Uh, that's how it feels to me. It feels like porn acting, which not not saying this to sexualize this 21 year old actor saying this to say that the motivation of his performance is not to be to get through the scene yeah it is this it is the kind of wooden dead-eyed acting that it's like someone once described to me uh the show fuller house the sequel (laughs) to full house as a porn parody without the porn 
And I instantly knew what that meant without having to see yeah. the show. Yeah. It's like, and that's that's how every scene that Ben's in feels. That's how his acting feels to me. I mean, that's kind of his character. He doesn't really have any character personality to him. He's just this sort of like vaguely handsome hunk of styrofoam that honestly David Nolan should take notes on. Uh-huh. I I will say to to bring this to Once Upon a Time, speaking of David Nolan, I did believe Chad Charming as David Nolan's Prince Charming's son. Yeah, I can believe it. The scene where Chad is like telling off the villain kids is like, you're, you stole a guy's girlfriend and you like hurting people. And all I could think is that SpongeBob episode. So now the talking cheese is going to preach to us. <laughs> yeah, he said, you stole a guy's boyfriend. And I'm like, um, hold on. Rewind that footage of how she broke up with her boyfriend, which was at the end of the song, she ran out and kissed you. She was like, I'm dating Chad now. <laughs> like, So maybe you should keep your mouth shut because you got a girlfriend out of it, buddy. <laughs> Chad. Chad. No one likes a Chad. Sorry if your name is Chad. Not really. <laughs> uh, if, if you are named Chad. That's a choice. I, that's a choice. Your name is a choice. And I think it's a great example of nominative determinism in action. All right. Do we have anything else to dive into before we give our final thoughts on this thing? Our final thoughts? I don't think so. I think we can just move on to that. I I, I think, you know, we could have gone more scene by scene and talked about like individual moments, but there wasn't enough meat in this two hour movie. I keep saying it. It's a two hour movie that contains nothing. Yeah, I... I'm surprised how slowly the time passed um, in between mediocre musical number. The songs, excuse me, the songs in this movie existed for the sole purpose of padding the time to fit in a specific block. And so that later on, they could sell a soundtrack album. Change my mind. Yeah, I read some baffling reviews of the movie on just on wikipedia at the bottom of the page where it's like this has like all the disney magic but with a modern twist and it's like are we watching the same movie there was no disney magic in this movie like i think that's why i'm so hard on it is because i expect disney to treat its precious licensed characters better than this and that's saying something because again i grew up in the 90s watching a lot of direct-to-video movies yeah same i have seen what disney is willing to churn out for a profit and honestly this isn't shocking to me especially because it's a disney channel movie and almost all of those movies are bad like i remember i looked up the kind of stuff that was coming out on disney channel when i was the age where i'd be watching this and it was stuff like smart house like like kids movies have smart always house been is kind a cinema of classic yeah <laughs> like katie seagal is always delightful but other than that it's trash um yeah the thing that bothers me looking at this and then looking at the stuff that came out when i was a kid is that consistently people allow themselves to be lazy when they make children's entertainment 
And it's frustrating yes. to me seeing all the missed opportunities, seeing all the things that could have been done better if there was care put into the script, into the songwriting, into anything. Um, because as we've seen with Once Upon a Time, which is not a perfect show by any means, but this sort of concept can work. Um, and it's just, they did not, they did the bare minimum to make this into a movie and that's all they needed to do to sell it. I know one of my friends has a kid who's 10 now. She's been Mal for Halloween for the past three years. She's obsessed with this movie. Um, and it's like, well, of course kids like it. Cause you know, when I was a kid, I didn't know what was good and what wasn't, but Looking back on it now, I wish people had put in the care to give me better entertainment. <laughs> For its audience, well, kids seem to really like it, and that's kind of the important thing. Like, yeah. This movie is harmless. It's not good, but it's harmless. And if kids mm -hmm. are having fun, that's really the important thing. So, yes. you know, more power to them if they're happy. Um, I would say that it's when they become adults and they look back on it, I don't think it's the kind of thing they're going to want to share with their kids. Um, yes. I, I think in the context, in that context, like, yeah, I, I don't see myself like showing my kids this the same way I will show them Pinocchio or Beauty and the Beast or Mulan or Hercules. Like, it's just, it's not going to happen. Um, where I would probably show them Halloween Town even though it's not a great movie, it's part of my childhood. Yeah, so, I mean... I don't know, maybe it's because it's not my, my childhood that I didn't... It didn't spark anything for me. Yeah, like, I... I'm never going to be a parent. If I would, I probably would not go out of my way to show my kids any Disney Channel original movies. Um, <laughs> Fair. I might even discourage them, because I might be worried it would rot their brain. Um, but... I don't know. I feel like this is going to be one of those things people look back on and think like, can you believe we used to like this and such? I grew up during the high school musical craze. Like I was a middle to high schooler when that was going on. I don't think any people I know that are parents now have probably shown those movies to their kids. Yeah. I I think that I, I I'm in. I, I think I would have the same feelings of embarrassment for enjoying it the way I have feelings for embarrassment over how into Harry Potter I was. Uh, when I mean, it was I'm embarrassed thing, about like, that for different reasons. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I But I enjoyed the turf books um, with the anti-Semitism in the background, despite having <laughs> a large Jewish family. <laughs> um like I had no idea. I didn't know how to read, it, see those things in fiction yet. <laughs> I did, and I, I. It took me a while, and then like went back as an adult, and I was like, oh. But yeah, I, you know, I kind of feel that way, and like because that was very much like, or maybe a better comparison because it, this doesn't have that level of cultural power would be Animorphs. I have not read Animorphs. <laughs> I know I'm missing out. I don't think you can read Animorphs much in the same way that we can't watch this movie and appreciate it the way that an 11 year old can. I don't think you could go and read Animorphs now and appreciate it in the way that I loved it as an 11 year old. I'm sure that that's true. But you know, I say that now 
but all of the scungy, horrible, weird, muddy textures of PS1 games and low poly stuff has been completely uh, appropriated by the Zoomers as like their whole aesthetic. So maybe I'm an old and I don't know shit. <laughs> yeah, I'm an old too by you know Disney Channel standards. <laughs> this was not for me. Things similar to it were for me. So I can analyze it that way, but um, yeah. <laughs> I will say if you, if you, for me, like my takeaway is if you have little ones, like nieces and nephews or kids of your own, this might be, a, if they want to watch this, this won't be the worst thing to put on and have going on in the background. I will probably go watch the second and third movies after this because I kind of want to know what happens. Yeah, I'm morbidly curious and I will do it if it means I can get another guest spot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to subject you to another one of these unless unless we can't find something better to watch. But we didn't talk about the most important thing, best dressed. Um, generally speaking, Evie. But I will say Mal's coronation gown was also lovely. Mal's coronation gown was a high point. I really enjoyed her uh, going out on a date outfit when she had the scarf and the jacket. Once it was just the dress, I was like not feeling it. But her going out with that very dark green leather jacket, I really enjoyed that. I think that was probably one of the best looks in the movie. It was one of the least costumey costumes that this, that the, that they put on these these characters. Yeah, the, the stuff at the beginning was extremely costumey. Um. I kind of enjoyed most of what Carlos wore. They it, all of it looked like things that my edgy OC would wear around this time period. I expected something a little more posh from Carlos, just considering who his mother is. Well, they, you saw what they did to her. They did Cruella. Yeah. Yeah. Butcha. So I think that's all she wrote, folks. Yep. Thank you for having me back. This was a lot of fun. Sorry. Like zoned out for a minute. Yes. Thank you for coming back, Corey. It's been super fun to have you here. We're definitely going to be doing this again soon. Uh, Like I said, it's not clear on how long Elaine will be out for. Uh, So stay tuned. Follow us on our Twitter to keep posted on what we'll be doing next. I don't know if I want to do another Descendants right off the bat, but we will be bringing out something. Uh, As soon as Elaine is up to recording again, we will be doing... Episode four of Once Upon a Time, which I'm fine putting off with uh, putting off forever because it's a bumple episode. Uh... Bumple stilts belt belple stiltskin. I heard that Rembel is the the favored couple name. <laughs> well, I hate the couple, so I'm going to not use it. <laughs> And I know that uh, some of our listeners do enjoy Bumple <laughs> deeply. Sorry, uh, we I like will get the into... idea of Bumple. I like the I like the idea of it, uh, and I deeply enjoy both of the actors in those particular parts. We'll get into it on the podcast. <laughs> Anywho, uh, this has been Mads and Corey. Uh, Thank you for joining us uh, with Storybroke. Miserably ever after. This has been Storybroke. Miserably ever after. 
a Your Pretty Friend production. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and review us almost anywhere fine podcasts are downloaded. You can also follow us on Twitter at StoryBrokePod. This episode has been made possible thanks to the love and support of our spouses and listeners like you. Thank you.